But I was telling the first service, anyone that, uh, that really knows me knows my two favorite things about Sundays are coming to worship with you guys and then taking an afternoon nap. Because both of those things, both a regular cycle of time spent in the Lord's house and the promise of an afternoon rest can improve your perception of the whole world around you. It can help you preserve a youthful attitude. And it can actually reverse the, the negative side effects of stress and anxiety by lowering the levels of cortisol hormones in your body and raising your natural serotonin, all to make you a physically and emotionally healthier and happier person. So, uh, as I told the first service, churchgoers and armchair nappers take heart because today is our day. Uh, and that's really what this next section of Psalms we're about to look at is really all about. Uh, and then not just today, it's not just Psalm 95, but 95 through 100 uh, are about the worship and praise of the God who is not only the Lord and Creator, but it's also about the Sabbath rest that's promised to us in Jesus Christ, our gracious Savior. Uh, and you're really going to see that over the next five weeks, that those common connections hold this little grouping together and that they are not only Holy Spirit-inspired Scripture, they're not only magnificent liturgical poetry, they're not only the promise of a spiritual respite, but they also give vital and relevant instruction to us on what worship is and on how God expects for it to be done. And so uh, if, if you're following along in your Bibles, again, we're doing our expository study through the book of Psalms. We started at Psalm 1, and we're up to Psalm 95 today. And we only have a little over a year to go, so... At Psalm 95, the psalmist writes, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. On that day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, These people who go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they will not enter my rest. Let's pray together. Father God, you promised us when your word goes forward that it never returns to you in vain. And so, Lord, we ask your grace and mercy over these scriptures that have been read, over this message that is about to be offered. Uh, that would be you alone, Father, that would be glorified. Your name praised and your kingdom advanced through Christ our Lord. Amen. So, uh, as I was getting ready for this service, preparing for the message about not only Psalm 95, but this kind of little cluster that I said we're going to be looking at over the next five weeks. Uh, what really struck me about it is it's not just about worship, they actually are worship. Because even though all of these psalms were written separately, they were intentionally knitted together by the Levites, by the, the temple musicians, into a really elaborate cantata for the, the people in the pews, basically, 
and the Levites and the worship leaders to sing in refrain, to sing back and forth to one another, uh, and to actually encourage and spur each other on to a deeper devotion of our heavenly King. And you can really see that just in those first two lines of Psalm 95, where the worship leader would call out, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let's make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And then the people would, would say back, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let's make a joyful noise to him with songs. And there's really so much going on in just these two lines, we could actually just camp out on them alone for the next five weeks, but I only just want to break out a few of the major themes this morning. And the first one, I think these verses tell us that no matter who you are, you were made to worship. Every human being was, even if you don't think so. And also, even if you think you're an atheist, and I'll give you a quick example. I'm not sure how familiar you guys are with this author, but Pulitzer Prize winning author and avowed agnostic David Foster Wallace, right before his mental breakdown and his subsequent suicide, said this, and I remember this is a, an atheist writing this. He said, everyone has to live for something, and if that something is not God, then we are driven by that thing that we live for. He said, everybody worships, the only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for choosing some sort of God or some spiritual type of thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. He said, if you worship money and things, if there where you tap into real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. You'll never feel that you have enough. So if you worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. So if you worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb your own fear. If you worship your intellect, he says, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And he closes this out by saying the insidious thing about all of these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are automatic default settings. And so I guess even atheists can be right at least once in a while. Because, brothers and sisters, the witness and testimony of Scripture in general and of Psalm 95 in particular is that we were created for the work of worship. And the second thing that I was saying to the first service, I think it teaches us, and this is really kind of subtle and it's probably easy to miss, uh, is that we're supposed to encourage each other to worship together. I'm supposed to encourage you and say, come on, let's, let's sing to the Lord. And you're supposed to encourage me with, a, let's go into his presence with thanksgiving, with songs of praise. And we're not only supposed to encourage each other to participate in, in public corporate worship, but we're supposed to invite the whole world to come along with us. To come along with us as the psalmist tells us today. And he tells us why. He says, because the Lord is a great God. And a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his. The sea is his, for he made it. So to answer the question, why do we worship? It's not only because that's what we were made for, which is a good enough reason all by itself, but because of the exalted awesomeness of the God who created us and who created everything around us. The God who daily provides for us the food that we eat, 
the air that we breathe, the, the ground beneath our feet. But incredibly, somehow, despite all of those things, we still from time to time turn up our noses about attending worship or maybe committing an hour or so to a Bible study. And the only thing that I can really kind of equate how that must make God feel, uh, and some of you may understand this, would be for those of you that have adult children uh, that you've, you've raised and, and nurtured and cared for, and, and maybe you're even still supporting in some kind of way, uh, adult children who would move heaven and earth to go on a vacation for themselves uh, or spend a day with their friends but who act like it kills them to give you a simple phone call or to just stop by occasionally to see if you're still alive, and, unless, of course, if they need something. And there's actually a flip side to this attitude, too. Uh, you know, if I, had, if I had a dollar for every time someone said to me, Pastor, you know, I, I talk to God, but I'm not really into church. You know, church in air quotes. Uh, or, or to say to me, I, you know, I don't need to go to church to worship God. It's more of a private thing for me. And that's a really common and pervasive misunderstanding, and it's really a conflation of, of two parallel ideas, because it's confusion between having a private faith and having a personal faith. And, and brothers and sisters, those are definitely not the same thing, because our faith is and must be personal, but if it's genuine, it is not, and it must not be private. If faith is really personal, if it's if it's personally transformed you, how could you stand to keep it a secret? You know, I, I said I, I've heard people brag on great restaurants that they've found or uh, about doctors who have helped them in different areas, uh, brag about those things more than they brag about the bread of life and the great physician that we have. And brothers and sisters, it shouldn't be that way. Uh, we should be drawing others in because God has not only called individual believers to himself, but he's redeemed a whole people for himself that he brings together. That's why all throughout Scripture we see God's people gathered to worship. We see the community of faith called to assemble, just like in today's psalm. And the same was equally true in the New Testament era where after Christ ascended to his throne in heaven and the early church started to take shape, Acts 2 tells us, "...and all who believed were together and had all things in common." And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. You know, although they kept adding to their numbers and gaining favor with the common people, don't forget, being a Christian in the first century was not a walk in the park. It definitely was not popular. It wasn't cool. Being a part of a church wouldn't have helped you market your business or have burnished your reputation. You had to really want to participate. You had to make an effort. And even though you wouldn't have needed a lamb to offer for your sins anymore now that Christ was ascended and arose, going to church was still a sacrifice. It just required a whole different kind of offering, and this offering is the offering of yourselves. You know, it's really kind of one of those things that we all, we all know as Christians, but we still occasionally need to be reminded of. I mean, most of us understand the idea of, of giving money at church. There's little envelopes and we we put our money or our check in the envelope and we drop it in the if you're coming to the first service the big white bucket on the way out or uh, those great little boxes that Marshall installed for us uh, in the sanctuary and doing that represents an acknowledgement of God's blessing in our lives it it represents a commitment to the the ministry of this congregation 
it's really a vital part of our worship, and we pretty much all get those concepts. But all of us, without exception, need some help with the idea of offering not just our stuff, but of ourselves to God. To, to basically go all in when it comes to serving and worshiping Him. That's why the Apostle Paul said in the Scripture lesson that I read to you early this morning in Romans 12, he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that sounds like really good advice, right? The only trouble is we can't put ourselves in one of those little offering envelopes. We can't jump into Clara's arms as she walks by and say, I'm offering myself to God today. And, and even though, as I said to the first service, even if she could probably carry you, and I bet she could probably carry most of us, uh, I don't think you would fit into the deposit bag for the bank. And that might make you chuckle, but you know, even, even if we could squeeze you in there, the truth is most people don't come to a worship service prepared to offer our whole selves to God because we all like to hold on to a bunch of stuff. All of us have brought sins that need to be confessed before we leave today. All of us have brought questions that need answers and problems that need solutions. All of us have brought burdens that need to be lifted. Anxieties that need to be calmed and fears and frustrations and depression and distraction. And we need to be rid of those things, but God is never going to take those things away from us unless he takes all the rest of us too. And takes us for himself because you're never going to find rest. You're never going to find peace. You're never going to find resolution to all of the issues of life until you find them in him. And brothers and sisters, the way that we do that is in worship. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says the exact same thing. When he actually takes Psalm 95 that we read this morning and he quotes it over again, in Hebrews chapter 3, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so brothers and sisters, don't harden your hearts today, but give them to the Lord and do it in adoration and in worship and in praise and, and again, I, as I said to the first service, that's a really common word, worship, that we throw around. So if you're, if you're not familiar with what exactly that means, I read a great definition that I think really fits here. It comes from a man by the name of William Temple who wrote, Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It's the quickening of the conscience by His holiness, the nourishment of our mind with His truth, it's the purifying of our imagination by His beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, and the surrender of our will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. And so you see, he and, and the writer of Hebrews and, and David the psalmist 
are all saying that real worship is not merely the offering of corporate prayers to God or of having an inspiring liturgy or an impressive ritual, nor is it just making large donations in the collection plate or singing hymns of praise or listening to a sermon. And all of those things are good. They're, they're great. But real worship happens when we offer ourselves completely and wholeheartedly to God as we find ourselves caught up in His splendor and His holiness through the mercy that He's shown us in Jesus Christ and then not hold back in rebellion. That's why David said today in Psalm 95, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, although they had seen my works. And I'll trust you guys, you can go home and read that story on your own later in Exodus 17, but just to give it to you in a nutshell, what he means here is, don't be like the people of Israel who God had rescued from Egypt and who God had led through the Red Sea, and who had seen miracle after miracle. But then, then they fussed and worried that God might fail to give them a fresh drink of water at Meribah. And the truth is, we're often just equally guilty of the same thing, because remember back in Hebrews 4, we read, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us. We've had it proclaimed to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. So they didn't have a, a committed, worshiping, life-altering faith that only happens when we recognize all that God has done for us through His Son. Through Jesus, the healer, and the grace giver, the dead raiser, the sin forgiver. And, and I don't know about you guys, but I need that because I'm a sinner. And sin has deadly consequences. And while I was still sinning, Christ died for me. And he took my place. And in doing that, he took my sin, uh, not just on himself, but into himself. And he took my cosmic rebellion against the creator and the ruler of the universe. And he exhausted all of the wrath and the judgment and the punishment that I deserve so that I'll never have to. And praise God, brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, he did that for you too. Because as Psalm 95 says, For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And Christ is calling out to His flock today so that we can be, as I've said before, and I've said this a bunch of times in Bible study, so that we can be not a community of people who meet once a week to worship, but rather a group of daily worshipers who meet once a week to do it together as a family. Right? We've got to be not a group of people who meet once a week to worship but a group of daily worshipers who meet once a week here together to do it as a family. Uh, because being in the sheepfold uh, is a lifestyle. It's not a once a week event, but every day we live and everywhere we go uh, in gratitude for the new life that we're being transformed into. And the means by which that work is done is in hearing Christ speak through His Holy Word. And as we memorize Scripture... And as we meditate on it, and as we learn it and practice it individually and corporately, the more you'll be transformed into the image of Christ and stop being conformed into the image of this fallen world. But we have to decide what's more important. Is it what God wants, or, or is it what we want? And, and that's not just for a special group of Christians. That's not just for ministers and and missionaries, the truth is that all believers, every disciple of Christ is expected to be totally committed. 
Because uh, if you, you think about it, mediocrity is not attractive in any area of life, right? We don't like mediocrity in sports, in careers, in relationships, in academic studies, but particularly not in our relationship with Almighty God. And one author on this has said, our lives are designed to be all-consumed. He said, we feel right when we're completely used up for God's sake. I'm content, he says, when my effort has been spent, my words have been spent, my emotions have been spent, my body has been spent, and my intellect has been spent for the purpose of someone greater than me. And that someone is the transcendent personal God of the universe. Brothers and sisters, that's our Heavenly Father who sacrificed His only Son, our Savior, who gave His life to purchase us a freedom that we don't deserve and could never earn. And so just in closing, I want to <clears throat> remind us all this weekend to take some time to remember the men and women that have died so that you and I can be part of a local church. Remember the men and women have, who have died so that you and I can have and read a Bible in our own language. And remember the men and women that have died so we can speak openly about our Lord Jesus Christ and our faith in Him uh, and His selfless substitutionary sacrifice that made sure we could live lives of dignity and value and freedom, not just for the few short years that we have in this world, but in the one to come as well. And God help us if we ignore the price that was paid for all of that. <clears throat> God help us today as we see excuse me, so-called progressives throwing away that hallowed heritage with both hands, belittling the religious liberties that American soldiers have defended since the fledgling days of our democracy, ignoring the fact that the freedom to worship is one of our greatest national landmarks. It's one of our safest hedges against tyranny, and it's a sacred inheritance handed down from our ancestors. And so today, as we take time to remember all of the servicemen and women who have given their lives in the fight for freedom, you and I have to carry on the struggle for the country that we love. We've got to push hard against an age that's pushing hard against us. We have to shoulder the burden of our civic duty as good citizens of this republic. And above all, we have to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and pass on those godly principles that this country was founded on to the next generation. And we have to do it so that we don't take this weekend and make it just a fleeting few days of, of recreation, but that we seek to enter into a genuine Sabbath rest founded in the redemption purchased for us at the cross. And so that we don't turn this Monday into just a time to memorialize the dead, but to celebrate the resurrection of our risen and conquering King who is the Lord of heaven's armies and who calls out today Today, if you hear my voice, don't harden your hearts. You may never get another chance to hear it. Today, if you hear my voice, turn to me for healing. Today, if you hear my voice, brothers and sisters, don't tune him out, but slow down. Take some time to let go of the failing grip that we all try to have on the fragmented pieces of our fragile lives. And take a Sabbath reset this weekend. And by God's sovereign grace, ask him to transform you body and heart and mind and soul into a people of his pasture, into a sheep of his hands, and do it so that we can worship in his presence as brothers and sisters in Christ, not just now, but forever.
Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we thank you for this sacred weekend where we take time to remember the the men and women who have given their lives so that we can have all of these freedoms that we enjoy, so that we can have the freedom to assemble, the freedom to worship, the freedom of the press, and just so many things, Lord, that you give us that we don't deserve and that men and women have paid with, with their lives. And so, Father, we ask you to help us to live out that freedom and that truth Uh, And most of all, Lord, help us to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ so that your kingdom may advance and your name be glorified through your Son, our Lord. Amen.